Well, good morning. Great to see you in church this morning. Some of you noticed that I get to get, get a, I did get a cardinal come back in there, so just subliminally trying to you know give you those images and <clears throat> already trying with the Hawkeye thing you know subvertly to no. It's great to see you this morning. You know we all I've never met anybody who doesn't like a good comeback story, unless your team was the one that lost on that story. <laughs> But normally, we all love a good comeback story. I, I, I am amazed that you start talking about something like that or you start to relive something like that. We gravitate toward that. We love it. Um, I love to listen to stories of people who have been down and out or back against the wall or no hope kind of thing. Or, uh, and I just love to listen to their story of how they were able to come back out of that. You know, I think it's innate to us. We love a comeback because you know, really, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate comeback story. It is the ultimate comeback. There's never been a comeback like that. It is the ultimate comeback. And yet that story was a story that was meant for each and every one of us because we are desperately in need of a comeback. We re, that's, that essentially is our core uh, need. That's essentially our core problem. We need to make a comeback. Uh, I would say that we love comebacks because we are meant to be a comeback story. Each and every one of you are meant to be a comeback story. Um, and you know what? The scriptures are full of comebacks, full of people making a comeback. And so we want to take some weeks and just kind of look at some of these people, what they came back from. People like Moses and Jacob and uh, Paul and Zacchaeus. And the imagery you saw on our, on our uh, uh, series kind of graphic there all has a symbol from their life that either was the point where they started down the road where they were gonna need a comeback or it was the symbol of part of their life where they began to make a comeback. And so we just wanna, we wanna take some time and, and look at this. Uh, Moses, Jacob, Paul, Zacchaeus. But today I wanna look at Peter, um, the apostle Peter, um, and the comeback from failure. The comeback from failure. Uh, I think probably if there was a, Mount Rushmore of New Testament characters, uh, you're definitely gonna see Peter's face right there. He is gonna be on the Mount Rushmore of New Testament figures. He is central core to everything that is in the New Testament story um, and the starting of the church, the following Jesus, being his disciple, and, uh, and then being a, a core part of the church that we continue to this day 2,000 years ago. Uh, Christ Church. <clears throat> but uh, I want to remind you about, about Peter. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 says this. Now the names of the 12 disciples are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. The word first translated there in the Greek is not, hey, I'm going to start a list and I'm going to start with Peter. It's, I am saying his name first because he is the leader. He is the, in order of the pecking order here, Peter is considered the first disciple. That's exactly what that language is saying. And I'm, I'm 
telling you this because I want to remind you of, I want you to understand this when we look at his life. He was considered to be the leader of Jesus' disciples. Do you remember the, the first time we're introduced to Peter? Um, Jesus, uh, his brother has, has said, hey, let's follow this guy and he meets Jesus and, and it wasn't quite that simple. We always make it out to be that simple but it never was quite that simple but it was very radical. I mean, Peter just left all and, and followed Jesus. Do you remember as we're introduced to this story, the first thing we see, the first interaction between Jesus and Peter? Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, your name is Simon, but I am going to call you Peter, which means rock. Jesus, and this to me is just an amazing picture of how Jesus sees us. He looks at Peter, Simon, which means like, Hearing, I think, is the translation, which Peter wasn't a very good listener. <laughs> uh, he really needed to read the, you know, the verse that says you have two ears and be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Peter really needed to read that every day, probably. Kind of like me, probably. <laughs> but he wasn't a very good lead. He wasn't a very good listener. But, but, but Jesus looked at him and said, you know what, I see you. And I see exactly the dreams and the plans and the hopes and the way I designed you. And I'm gonna call you by that name, which is Rock. I'm gonna call you Rock. Because I see what is in you, what can be. And I would remind you that that is consistent with how God deals with all of us. He looks at us and he sees what can be what he has given to us, what he has created with, how he's designed us, and he looks at us and he sees, man, this is what can be. You know, that's, that's, that's true. In fact, the, what is it the psalm says? Um, the thoughts of God toward us are as the sands by the seashore. You ever, <laughs> I can't even imagine starting that. You pick up a handful and what thousands maybe in a million right there that's how much God thinks about us cares for us because he's God he can have those amount of thoughts we can't right but that's that's and that as we're introduced to Peter we're reminded again of Jesus has his love for us his his belief in us his hey this is what I've done this is how I've created and this is the potential in you and that's what he does with Peter just right off the bat he says hey yeah you've been called that but I'm gonna call you rock because I can see what can be but you know I want you to notice a pattern from Peter's life, though. I think we all, I, I think most of us probably could identify with this guy a lot. That's why he's on, you know, one of the, if I would say, the Mount Rushmore of the New Testament. Um, I mean, because we identify this guy. Remember things from his life? Like, um, <clears throat> the guy walks on water. Um, you know, I, I want that going in my obituary somewhere walked on water was a member of nap naz and walked on water well that'd be good we'd get more people to come right because like, wow 
You go there, you can walk on water. But I, I, that is an incredible life event, right? I think probably him and Jesus are the only ones, right? It's it. Now, that story, he walks on water, but he also did what? He about drowned. <laughs> he took a step or two, and then he almost drowned. And actually, Jesus... In that story, he wasn't necessarily as much like, wow, Peter, you walked on water. He was like, Peter, you didn't have to sink. It's like incredible high and then, oh, you know? Jesus is kind of giving me the business here. Remember Peter uh, confessed Jesus as Lord? Remember that, that, that section of scripture? Jesus said, hey guys, who do you think I am? Because he's starting to, it's starting to move, make shift in his ministry. It's time, it's go time. It's starting to, he's really wanting to understand it. Some say, well, you're Jeremiah or Elijah, you're some great prophet. Peter just boldly says what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, he just boldly proclaims that. Uh, something that we use now just as, and, and Jesus looks at him and said, blessed are you Peter. You understand what this is. God has helped you to understand who I am. Incredible high. Keep reading about three or four more verses. Because Jesus then calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's Peter's life. It's like, woo, woo, woo. My wife jokes about that's like me watching an Iowa football game. Like, woo, woo. Like a roller coaster. My kids have gotten used to it. But, you know, you're going to ride the roller coaster for three hours here. That's Peter's life. Incredible highs. I mean, does stuff that we haven't done. And then, I mean, you keep reading. I think it's interesting. Matthew 16, 17, you, these things that I've told you. And then verse chapter 17, he gets a chance to do a once-in-a-lifetime event, go with Jesus and the uh, two others, him, the three. And they get to go up on this mount. And it's, we call this transfiguration. I, I got to be honest, I really don't really comprehend all of it. I think it's cool. But it's hard for us to really grab it, right? Because I've never seen anything like that. Really, none of us have. He gets to go up and like do this, this transformational event where Jesus sitting there talking with Old Testament figures and it's a holy moment. He is experiencing something and like, wow, I just went to heaven for a while and came back. And right in the middle of that, this like, wow, Peter opens his mouth. Like, hey, Jesus, we should just make, you know, tents for you and the other two. To which God himself speaks out of the clouds. This is basically is saying, what in the world are you doing, Peter? Jesus is not like these other two. He is far above these other two. Pay attention to him. So he gets this like sacred holy moment and he just ruins it kind of almost. He gets rebuked by God the Father from heaven. Talk about roller, roller coaster, right? I mean, that's Peter's life. I guess you could say this way. I like this phrase. Peter just can't seem to get out of his own way. He just can't seem to get out of his own way. I mean, I haven't even mentioned the fact about him arguing about who's the greatest. And he even had, remember the story where he basically commits Jesus to paying taxes without consulting Jesus? Jesus. 
You know, like the guy comes to Jesus and said, hey, does your rabbi, does he pay taxes? Yeah, he does. Didn't even ask Jesus until later, you know, and Jesus like, anyway. Yeah, he just was in, couldn't get out of his own way, refusing to have his feet washed type thing. Uh, important moment. But yet I think that could be said of all of us. The human condition is we just can't seem to get out of our own way. I think that's why we identify with, with Peter so much. Because he's like us so much. I mean, Paul, ah, wow. Yeah, great guy. Loved to listen to his teaching, obviously, but I don't really identify with Paul as much as I do the Apostle Peter. Because it's just his, his, whole, his whole life seems to be a, a scattering or failure. It's here, there, and a little bit of everywhere. Obviously, because of our fallen condition, failure becomes familiar to us. Failure becomes familiar to us, doesn't it? You put that together with our attempts to make things right, to fix it, to make it better, hence all the religions of the world. We realize we failed. What are we gonna do about it? All of the moral things we try to do, all of the systems, in fact, I would say that failure has become a main thread in the fabric of society. What are we going to do with failure? We live in a performance culture, and so we've gotta figure out how am I gonna deal with win, loss, profit, loss, productive, disposable, all this kind of stuff. We even have these, you can watch online these just videos of people failing. They call it fails now, you know? It's a culture of, of failure. In fact, I read about a CEO who had taken a new job, and, and he had a meeting with the outgoing CEO, and and they had a good meeting at the end. The, the outgoing CEO said, hey, man, sometimes you're going to make wrong choices in this job. Uh, you will. You're going to mess up. And when that happens, I'm actually looking out for you. I've prepared three envelopes for you. I left them in the top drawer of the desk. The first time it happens, open one, second, two, and third time it opens three. Sounds great. Okay. Didn't open them. Trusted the process. For the first few months, everything goes fine. Then this new CEO makes his first mistake. He goes to the drawer, opens up the envelope, and reads, blame me. So he does. It's the old CEO's fault. He made these mistakes. I inherited these problems. And you know what? Everybody said, okay, and it works out pretty well. Things go along for a while. He makes his second mistake, and he goes to the drawer and opens up an envelope, number two. This time he reads, blame the board. And he does. It's the board's fault. The board has been a mess. I inherited them. They're the problem. And everything, everybody says, okay, that makes sense. Things go fine for a while. And then he makes his third mistake. He goes to the drawer and opens up envelope number three. And the message simply reads, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> yeah. Failure is familiar, isn't it? All of us. We identify with Peter on that. You know, it comes to a, a, a head, though, in Mark 14, 72. We read this. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, 
you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. And this becomes truly the defining moment of Peter's life. Becomes a defining moment. All those failures, sinking, getting rebuked, opening his mouth, cutting people's ears off. Remember that one? I forgot about that one, but you know, he cut a guy's ear off. No big deal. This is the big one. This is the one that we still talk about 2,000 years later. That big of a failure. Huge. I mean, the guy who just said, Lord, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're everything. I've given my life to follow you. Uh, In fact, the pressure's starting to mount. They're coming after you. Lord, I will go with you even unto death. But when the rubber meets the road and when it's game on, he's hanging back in the shadows and in fact, when he's identified, he's cursing and and yelling and saying, I don't even know who Jesus is. This is failure. Like in the encyclopedia. This is it. Peter's face is right beside it. Failure is familiar to him and to us. But I want you to notice something else about Peter's life. And if you don't, you know, I understand. You probably don't even remember what I spoke about last Sunday. It's okay. But if if you can take these four sentences I've crafted this week, I, I would be thrilled if you just... Grab a hold of these. Failure's familiar. The second thing I would notice is, but the power over failure is forgiveness. The power over failure is forgiveness. Peter has went and done it, as your parents might say, right? You went and did it this time. Broken, weeping, alone, I mean, he is, when it counted, he wasn't counted. And yet, as we read the gospel narrative, Mark 14, 72 says, this is Peter. Off into the dark he goes. And yet, Mark 16, 7 says this. But go and tell his disciples. What? And Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell the disciples and Peter. That's one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament because I see in that verse everything I need to know. (laughs) Look at how God, I, I like this. You know, Peter was in charge of his own failure. Christ took charge of restoring him. That's the God that we have. You went and did it, and yet he's coming after you. I would say this, the litmus test of whether you 
understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God? You go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't understand the throne of grace with confidence, if you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. In fact, you are most offensive to God when you come to him with all of your efforts, when you're still trying freely to earn what's been freely given. You so honestly, was there anything that Peter could have done to make up for his failure? Really, no. He wasn't gonna be able to earn it back He wasn't gonna be able to work it back. He wasn't gonna be able to change the situation. He wasn't gonna be able to on and on and on, right? He had nothing except for one thing. And that was the forgiveness of the one he had failed. And I would say the start of the comeback from failure starts with understanding the forgiveness of God. I mean, look at this. Mark 16, 7. Hey, please let Peter know. I I want him. I want to meet with him. He's still mine. I forgive him. And he did. Remember, the Gospels tell us he met with him. But you even read in John chapter 20, Jesus wants to have breakfast with the guys. And so he's on the, they're fishing and and he's, um, He's on the shore and he tells them to, remember that story, cast your nets on the other side and they do and they realize it's Jesus and Peter, I mean, they had a boat full or net full of fish and he just abandoned the other two. He just jumped out of the boat and started swimming to Jesus. He gets there at breakfast and what is Jesus so carefully and thoroughly doing with Peter? Remember that conversation? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Remember how many times he denied him? Three. How many times does the Lord cause him to confess his love for him? Three. I mean, that's the way our God does this. His forgiveness is so thorough and so deep, he wants to make it so absolutely clear to us that our failure is not what counts. It's his forgiveness. He is thorough with Peter. I I like the idea that there's two fires in Peter's story. There's the fire that's going around when he's denying the Lord. And there's the fire on that seashore when the Lord is restoring him and making it all right. That's what the comeback from failure is. It it starts with an understanding that God forgives our failure. I mean, that was a big one, right? I don't think the rest of us have denied the Lord and left him out to dry when he's about ready to go to the cross. Abandoned him like that. But you know what? All of us can recount our failure, our failures. And yet, consistent with the character of God, he treats them just as he did Peter's failure. He treats it with forgiveness. And that's where the comeback starts, is when you and I realize
it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter this, it doesn't matter that, it doesn't matter why, it doesn't matter how bad, it doesn't matter how absolutely, why, he forgives. That's why he used languages like as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's why he uses phrases like, I, 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 don't, I don't treat you according to your iniquity to your sin. I treat you with love and forgiveness. Allow yourself to drink deeply at the well of forgiveness and allow your failure to be drowned in that well. That includes understanding that because he's forgiven us, we have, we should forgive ourselves. Because I have found this enough in pastoral ministry that we get this little idea that we do, we do realize God forgives, but so often we keep hanging on to it. Listen, drink deeply at the well. He forgives completely. He's not remembering it against you no more. He even uses terms like dropped in a sea of, you know, for, he forgets which only God can do that, how he does that. But he doesn't treat you. Allow your failure to be forgiven. The third thing I would notice about failure is this. The lessons learned from failure are foundational. The lessons learned from failure are foundational. You know, Peter ended up writing a couple books in the Bible, right? First Peter, Second Peter. You read through that and you just see... <laughs> the lessons God's taught him. You just see through his words and his spirit or what God has done in his life and how he took the circumstances, the serial failures that Peter had and he did a work in his heart and life. And he finishes that book in this way. I think this verse kind of sums up what he's trying to say. And the God of all grace, well, he's realized that, right? Man, totally forgiven, of denying the Lord, totally forget, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. <laughs> now, obviously he's writing to people who are suffering, okay? If you understand First Peter. But he's also, there's no doubt Peter is writing this thinking about, yeah, and the suffering I caused myself. Because a lot of times in our lives, there's the suffering that we live because we live in this fallen world, and there's also the suffering that we bring on our own by our decisions, right? After you've suffered, after you, God will, God will restore. Is that how it reads? God will himself. It's an intense word trying to tell you, listen, in the middle of your failure, in the middle of what you've got going on, God will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's kind of this idea. God takes, not only forgives our failures, but he takes our failures and he teaches us lessons from them that become core to who we are. That's kind of like God works all things together for good to them that love him. Kind of in that idea. He's always, he never wastes, 
He never, he takes. I'm, I can witness this in my own life. My failures and the guilt and the mess and even the consequences from them. With the Lord helping me through them, forgiving me of them, he has taught me foundational lessons for the rest of my life. And that's what failure does. That's what God can do with our failure. You know, in the, in the Japanese culture, um, there's a word called golden repair, and really, it's, uh, it's something they love to do. It's the art of restoring broken pottery. They take broken pottery, broken pieces, and they, they put them back together, the cracks, the gaps even, or whatever, but they do it with gold. They do it with gold so that this broken piece of pottery now has gold filling in the cracks, filling in the gaps, making it an unbelievably beautiful piece of art. But it's also a way the Japanese culture communicates that they esteem this so valuable because that is a picture of brokenness and what can happen when brokenness comes together. We definitely understand that, don't we? Because we have the God who takes beauty or takes ashes and makes beauty out of ashes. And our lives, if we allow him to restore, obviously begin with forgiveness and then allow him to take our failures and just create the foundation of our understanding, our thinking, it creates this unbelievably gold line piece of art. That's what it does. But you gotta give him to him. You gotta trust him with, you gotta allow him to forgive you completely. You know, I read a story. I think that this just happened in, let's see, July or January 18th, 2010. It was league night at the Plano Super Bowl. I'm assuming that's Plano, Texas. Bill Fong had rolled 33 consecutive strikes. About six years ago, right? Six and a half years ago. Now, if you're a bowler, and, and, and you know, probably somebody in here's bowled a 300, right? I mean, that happens. Um, no one's raising their hand. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> that's, I mean, but that's doable. That happens. But the holy grail of bowling is three consecutive games of 300. It happens very, very rarely. A 900 score. And on that night in January in 2010, Bill Fong was 33 strikes in. 34 down the lane, strike. Bill said that after he rolled that 34th and then the 35th, he said, I started to feel physically, I felt dizzy, I felt sick. But he said, you know what? There was no way I was gonna quit and sit my last one out, Right? So he gets up there for his last, last frame, last bowl. And the way the article goes is he let her go and it looked perfect. In fact, the crowd started cheering as it was going down the lane. Nine hundreds on the way. The ball hits, the pins fly, and the 10 pin falls over a little bit and then comes back up. And Bill Fong bowled an 899 that night. He was 
really disappointed. He said he got home, though, and, and his condition kept getting worse. He, um, he uh, staggered into his bathroom, and he threw up. The walls started to spin, and Bill was having a stroke. And although already struggling with high blood pressure, the events of the Monday night evening had turned, into a, turned a delicate situation into a deadly one. He didn't realize he had a stroke then until he had another one later. And his doctor found scar tissue from that first stroke. And he was also told about that Monday night at the league. And this is what his doctor said. The only thing that saved Bill on that night of him bowling in 899, in his opinion, was that number 10 pin staying up. Had that last pin fell, Bill's doctor feels certain that his body, already in the midst of a stroke, would have pushed his blood pressure even higher. And that most likely would have killed Bill immediately on lane 28. See, what felt like the worst thing that could have happened he bowled an 899. Turned out to be the very thing that helped save his life that night in his doctor's opinion. I kind of thought that story was cool. But I would tell you in a far greater way, so often we think some of the mistakes we've made and the failures we've had, I just think it's, it's, it's created the worst possible scenarios for our life. We've messed up. And I would tell you that God takes that brokenness and he restores it. He heals. He puts it together in a way that when he's working and when he's doing his work, we walk away and say, wow, what a beautiful thing God has done. And it becomes foundational for our lives, what God does, can do with our failure. See, Peter's defining moment was the rooster crowing. But God made that defining moment one for his glory and for our good. It was the turning point in, in Peter's life. It was time to, to get, it was time to stop failing. God pursued him, forgave him, and through that, made him strong, firm, and steadfast. That's what God does if we'll let him, if we'll trust him. That's why I would say the last thing is the truth about failure is it doesn't have to be final. Judas betrayed the Lord Peter denied the Lord. Now you can call me a heretic all you want, but I truly believe that if Judas would have sought forgiveness from the Lord for betraying him, he would have found it. Right? But he allowed that failure to be final. Peter didn't. And you read Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. 
This is the first sermon of the church. This is Pentecost come out of the doors. This is the church of Jesus Christ starting and who's standing talking to the crowd. That's the guy who had denied the Lord. That's the guy who couldn't get out of his own way. That's the guy who through God's healing, restoring process became a leader of the church. A rock. A rock. That's what God does with failure. There is a comeback from failure. It's through the forgiveness and the work of Jesus Christ in us. Amen? Amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning. I just want you in this Labor Day weekend as you've come into worship. I, I, don't, I don't know all the circumstances, the history of your life, but I don't doubt for a second that as I'm talking, there's people that, that really just need a comeback from failure. Maybe you've blown it big time. Maybe you'd say your life's just a failure. Or maybe you'd say, you know what, I, it just seems like I can't ever just get out of my own way. I, I get, you know, I'm just... And failure, it seems to weigh me down. I can't forgive myself. Seem to always just live in that world of, I'm not free. I'm not confident. I definitely don't sense God's forgiveness. I just want to remind you today there's a comeback from that. (laughs) Peter shows us that beautifully, doesn't he? And you haven't denied the Lord. So whatever you've done, I guarantee you. (laughs) He forgives. Can you let him do that today? Will you let him do that today? Will you trust him? Will you understand that you're not gonna be able to fix it on your own strength? You're not gonna be able to fix it. You just need his forgiveness to start a comeback. You're just going to need to trust him with it. Give it to him. And then allow him to do the beautiful thing he does. But just drink deeply of his forgiveness today. Because that's what he does with failure. He wants to forgive it. Peter is exhibit A for the reality that you and I can come back from failure. So I just invite you to pray. Just invite Invite him into that failure of your life. Allow him to forgive you. Trust him that he forgives you. Father, Lord, all of us are acquainted with failure. But Lord, I might be speaking today to someone who that just seems to be their life. If they would tell you, they would honestly say yeah honestly I'm just I've just failed Lord can you help them to see today you forgive them and you're not you're not holding it against them You want to just forgive them. You look at them like you looked at Peter. You see what can be. 
You're not deterred by the failings. Lord, you just invite us to drink deeply from the well of your forgiveness. So Lord, if there's someone today who's dealing with failure, they need to come back from that. They need, a, they need to come back out of that. They need a new Lord, forgive them today. I already know you forgive them, but help them to claim that, accept that, receive that. For your sake, I pray. Lord, maybe today there's some of us who struggle to forgive ourselves. We acknowledge you forgive us. We kind of got that part, but honestly, at the end of the day, we just, we keep holding on to what we've done, how we've messed it up. Well, Lord, just to be quite honest with us today if you forgive we don't have any right to not forgive ourselves you're the one we sinned against so Lord help us just to release that and also to drink of that well thank you for these stories Lord thank you for these pictures thank you for who you are and how you deal with us you deal with us as you dealt with Peter you thoroughly forgive us. Help us to turn to you with it. And thank you and praise you for your love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.